Good evening. Welcome to tonight's Middle East Center Friday seminar. My name is Walter Armbrust. I'm one of the fellows of the Middle East Center, and I'm chairing tonight's session, hosting our speaker. The theme for this series of lectures is environments in the Middle East. And I should say at the beginning that we will be taking questions through the Q&A feature. If you don't want your name to be identified when you ask a question, let me know that you want to be anonymous. So tonight's speaker is Jamie Furness, who is currently a researcher at the Institute for Research on the Contemporary Maghreb in Tunis, but he's on leave from his position as a lecturer in social anthropology at the University of Edinburgh. He has a DPhil from Oxford, where I knew him well years ago, when he was a student in the Department of International Development. He conducted fieldwork in Egypt and was there when I was there as well, so we know each other quite well. He researches primarily on topics pertaining to environment, waste, and urban development. His dissertation was titled Metaphors of Waste, Several Ways of Seeing Development in Cairo's Garbage Collectors. And he's spun off quite a few articles from his dissertation, including one titled Post-Revolutionary Land Encroachments in Cairo, Rhizomatic Urban Spacemaking and the Line of Flight from Illegality in the Journal of Tropical Geography, Alternative Framings of Transnational Waste Flows, Reflections Based on the Egypt-China PET, which means Polyethylene Terephthalate Plastic Trade. That's in AREA, the Journal of the Royal Geographic Society. He has a couple of entries in the SAGE Encyclopedia of Consumption and Waste, and he's curated a giant museum exhibition at the Museum of European and Mediterranean Civilizations in Marseille titled Lives of Garbage, the Economy of Waste, which resulted in the sale of 129,000 tickets. The title of his lecture tonight is The Blue-Clad Fennec, Authoritarian Environmentalism in Tunisia and Its Afterlives. You have the abstract already on our website, so you've already read that. And I can confess that environmentalism isn't something I normally associate with authoritarianism, but it seems it was nonetheless a tool in the governmental repertoire of the now deposed Ben Ali regime in Tunisia. I look forward to hearing the details. And so with no further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Jamie Furness. Okay, thanks very much for the introduction, Walter, as well as having put me forward, since I, I owe you thanks for uh, this invitation tonight, as well as, of course, to Michael Willis uh, in, in absentia for having uh, reached out to me. It's a pleasure to, to be able to join you and, and to be back, if only virtually, amongst the, the Middle East Studies crowd in Oxford. So I wanted to start with just a, a brief word on my transition from, from Egypt to Tunisia, because... I guess it's with the work that I did on waste collectors in, in Egypt, was that which you had in mind when you invited me. And when I started doing research in Tunisia a couple of years ago, I basically thought initially that I would transplant the work that I had done from, uh, from Egypt here. So I started uh, taking interest in what they call the Berbesha here, which are sort of a rough equivalent uh, to the Zebelin in, in Cairo, although in fact they're, they're really quite different. But these would be itinerant collectors of recyclable materials. And then also uh, the, uh, the ferrailleurs or Khardejia, uh, who are um, scrap metal collectors. But one of the things that, that sort of struck me from day one here, and it's, it's almost kind of so simple as to be ridiculous, was the, the omnipresence of the boulevards of the environment in Tunisia. 
And at some point I thought, gosh, I mean, if I'm, if I'm someone who's working on the environment, I have to find out a, at least a little bit about what the story of these, uh, these boulevards is. And the other thing that was really striking to me was the amount of signage in public space asking people not to litter. So anti-littering campaigns organized by NGOs, by a lot of them are just spontaneous writings on walls. So people put these up in front of their houses or on the wall of their garden to try to discourage people from littering on their property. Uh, but you also find them like in public transit, pretty much everywhere you go. I mean, you, you almost kind of, you know, even if you're not looking for it, you sort of bump your head on these things as you're walking around here. It's really extraordinary. And so I started kind of following these two avenues and I've, I've done sort of one book chapter now that uh, should be coming out soon in the Routledge Handbook of Waste Studies on these signs. And so tonight's paper sort of starts with the, the other of these two uh, observations, the boulevards of the environment. And I'm going to try to follow that sort of as a thread that's going to take us into a discussion of, of how the environment was used as a device for propaganda and a, as a political device uh, in the 1990s and 2000s prior to 2011, so during the Ben Ali regime. And that's hopefully going to be kind of the first part of the paper. And then hopefully the second part, the second part's going to be a little bit more messy. I'm going to try to sort of throw out through a series of examples an argument about what I think people are talking about when they talk about the environment. So the idea, I guess, here is that the contours of the term environment, while not entirely unfamiliar to someone like myself who grew up in, in North America, are at the same time a, a little bit different in Tunisia. And of course, they're constantly shifting over time around the world as, um, as the term is consolidated and, and rises in political and uh, everyday importance. But again, this is sort of, it sort of echoes back to, to my experience in Egypt. And in particular, we were talking before starting the summer about, about Nicholas Hopkins, uh, who recently passed away, who, who was uh, the lead author on a book in the early 2000s called People and Pollution in Egypt, um, which was a survey-based study of people's attitudes towards uh, environment and pollution in Egypt. And one of the things that I'll never forget from that book was that when they surveyed people in Cairo about, uh, and I believe in some other cities in Egypt, about what it was that threatened the environment, you got the series of usual answers like air pollution, uh, waste, and so forth. And then there were a whole series of answers that people gave which related to religio-moral purity. So they said things like, for instance, boys and girls who are unmarried, holding hands and going out in public, people drinking alcohol, foul language, bad behavior are threats to the environment. And I always thought, isn't that curious? And what then do people have in mind when they're thinking about the environment? So I guess the questions that I'm trying to ask in this research are what do people mean when they talk about the environment? And then how is action in the field of environment constrained or oriented by um, these historical political uses as well as sort of the general context uh, for understanding the term. And so I guess the, the interest, I mean, I'm, I'm pursuing this as, a, as an academic project, naturally, that I think has interest in Middle East and North African studies and anthropology, but also a sort of practical pitch uh, for this is that in the kind of contemporary context where everyone is trying to federate 
political forces around the environment in order to save the planet and, and the future of our species. It's interesting to know to what extent, you know, the people who, who are having these discussions may have differing notions of what it is that we're trying to save or what the environment consists of. And of course, that, you know, polysemy can be productive as well, because uh, sometimes it's easier to get people to agree. They think they're agreeing to, to different things. So let me talk a little bit about Labib, who's the, uh, the blue-clad fennec that you see there, uh, and the boulevards of the environment. And I'll, I'll start with the boulevards of the environment, which uh, are really omnipresent in the country. Every one of the larger cities, well, if, I would say virtually every city in the country has one of these boulevards, Cher uh, Bia, Boulevard de l'Environnement, of course, they write it in French. And in large cities, there'll be several per district. So in Tunis, for instance, there'll be five or six of these things. Um, and they tend to be uh, sort of the preeminent avenue or boulevard of the neighborhood or of the city. They often have a divider in the middle uh, with some plants. So these are some examples from, from my travels around the country that I've, I've photographed. These are some examples from Tunis. So the one on the left, for instance, is in uh, La Goulette famous locale for a film on which you've written an article, uh, Walter, <laughs> and the one on the right is in Sidi Bou Said, so a, a kind of a touristic village in the capital. And as you can see, these things uh, tend to be quite run down. This one here, which was used on the poster for the talk, was taken in El Kef, which is in the northwest of the country. And you can see how it's got a bit of a tag on it and the ray is, has fallen from its fastenings and, and no one has come around to repair it. So what this uh, tells you, the fact that they're, they're sort of left to ruin or in some cases even vandalized at a minimum, is that none of them has been created in sort of the last 10 to 15 years. So all of these date from prior to 2011, and some of them go back to the early 1990s. So the new streets or large boulevards that are, that are named more recently tend to be named, for instance, for the, the past president, Bejikai de Sipsi, and above all, for martyrs of the revolution. So it's very common to, to name uh, roundabouts and, and streets or, or even rename them in many cases for martyrs of the revolution. So I want to, I want to talk just a little bit about the, the background of these. Many of the streets that, were, that are currently named Boulevard of the Environment existed prior under a different name. And they tended typically to be the Bourguiba avenues Bourguiba, of course, was the president of Tunisia from 1957 to 87, succeeded by Ben Ali, and he, he was the hero of decolonization. So when Ben Ali came to power with his sort of uh, aspirations to, uh, <laughs> to replace Bourguiba, one of his political projects was to de-Bourguibize, if I can invent that word, public space, but at the same time to do so by putting up his own name in place of the hero of the uh, anti-colonial movement and to replace the statue with the statue of himself uh, would have been too crass and, and really kind of unthinkable because of the, the status of, of Bourguiba in the country's history. So in this context, something more neutral, such as the environment, was a way of erasing Bourguiba from public space, while at the same time not sort of scandalizing public opinion. It also served a purpose, and this is my second point, of giving the impression that uh, Tunisia valued the environment very highly. 
and when you talk, uh, I, I've done a little bit of kind of oral history work with people who worked in the ministry and had sort of other public roles. When you talk to them, uh, it's clear that this was a deliberate political strategy of legitimization in Western eyes. And in that sense, it was comparable to Tunisia's position on uh, family law and in particular women's rights. So this was sort of greenwashing or pinkwashing, uh, the idea being that they were able to sort of paper over and, and cause Western observers to ignore to some extent the violations of civil and political rights within the country by presenting themselves as progressive on these sort of hot button or touchstone issues in a kind of hierarchy of you know, Euro-American values, if I can put it that way. And the other part of this, of course, was that it helped to open up a lot of channels for international funding which would flow to, uh, to environmental projects. So that's sort of my interpretation of the use of these boulevards. The third thing I might just add here is that, and here we could borrow, I guess, maybe from James Scott's book, Seeing Like a State, that these served as micro-environments of apparent order. So if you remember in that book, he talks a lot about model villages, demonstration projects, new capitals, and so on, that are designed to transform society. And I think it's clear, in fact, that these boulevards had this sort of exemplary role. So they were, they were supposed to be kind of the one space within the city that would be beautiful and clean. And by demonstrating that, you know, it's possible for at least one space to be clean, they were supposed to have a beneficial effect on society and the, the city as a whole. They were sort of by contagion supposed to influence for the better and of course, they, they also were a space of appearance of order, as Mitchell talks about in colonizing Egypt, where they were a, a picture of something. So these were an avenue that, for instance, when you had a foreign dignitary who was visiting, or perhaps even just you know, a minister in, in the government, that you could sort of whisk them down uh, without embarrassment and give a positive impression of the country. This is just a photo to tell you that, that this idea of these sort of demonstration spaces is, is one that uh, persists today, even if the boulevards of the environment are no longer created. This is a photo in downtown Tunis of Nahaj Marsilia, Rue de Marseille, which they have baptized, a, Nahaj is what they call a, a small uh, street here, Sharia uh, Namuzeji. So this is like an ideal idealized kind of space, what they call in French a rue témoin. So it's supposed to testify to the fact that at least one street in downtown uh, can be kept clean, beautiful, and, and orderly. Now, at the ends of these boulevards, and here we move on to Labib, the blue-clad fennec, at the ends of these boulevards, typically at a, a, a roundabout, you'll find one of these statues. Now, this is a desert fox or fennec, and he was the mascot of the environment. So just as I was saying earlier, the boulevards were often renamed from Bourguiba Boulevard to Boulevard of the Environment. You would often find this statue today, or in particular between 1990 and say 2011, at a place where a statue of Bourguiba once stood. There's different versions of the statue, like the one on the left here where uh, he's pictured uh, with children and they're dressed kind of like Boy Scouts. Here on the right, there's a giant version. I, I don't know if you can see the waste bin in the lower left of that photo. It gives you a sense of scale. That's probably uh, 25 feet high or something like that. And that's located, uh, it's the largest one I've been able to find so far. I, of course, photograph these things uh, in, in my travels as I go around the country. 
This is located in Anahli Park, where there's a large number of them. There's about four or five of them in Anahli Park. And Anahli Park is actually a lovely space, even to this day. It's a large park space, semi-developed. It's, it's semi-wild. It's not entirely maintained in the uh, city of Tunis. And it was supposed to be a, a space of environmental protection, but also a space where you would take children's groups, for instance, to you know, have an experience in nature. And therefore, uh, it was appropriate for there to be statues of all different sizes of Lubib throughout this park. But you, you also find them at other locations. For instance, there's a kind of government-run Epcot center here called Medina del Olum, Cité des Sciences. It's like a planetarium where children's groups go. And there, there was a, a large uh, Lebib at the entrance to, to Medina del Olum as well. Now, as you can see, like the boulevards, these statues are, are also in disrepair. And part of that, as I say, is, is simply that they're all, uh, you know, 15 to, uh, to 35 years old at this point. And as I'll come to in a moment, probably never were very well maintained, but since 2012 have ex explicitly been left to neglect. But it's not merely that they've fallen apart. They've actually been, in many cases, intentionally disfigured and damaged. And that occurred in the aftermath of the 2011 revolution. And, and this photo here, I particularly like because of the way it, it, it was disfigured in the genitals. It gives a sense of the, the, <laughs> the meaning that people attributed to this figure. This is more than just teenagers being assholes. The symbol of Labib became a representation of the dictatorship and therefore was a kind of focal point of people's anger in 2011. So everyone uh, that you talked to who was around at the time remembers that these statues were attacked. And the explanations as to why tend to differ a little bit. So for instance, I was talking to a mayor of a city in the Northwest who's been an elected official for more than 20 years. I showed him this exact photo and I said, what do you think about the defacement of these Labibs? And he said to me, well, that's because Labib was a symbol of corruption. And so we began talking about this story, which is corroborated by a number of people, which pertains to the fact that the, the Minister of Environment Mehdi Malika from 1992 to 1999 was Ben Ali's nephew. So the ministry itself was a, a symbol of nepotistic appointment. But also the second dimension of corruption here is that Malika eventually, when he realized how important this sort of environmental communication and education was, ended up firing the caricaturist who the ministry had hired to create Labib. And he created his own company, which was a public relations company that then obtained all of the contracts for the production of these statues and the Labib paraphernalia uh, that was used for environmental education. So it wasn't just his nepotistic appointment. He, he also then became a symbol, symbol of the kind of self-dealing that a lot of uh, public figures under Ben Ali engaged in profiting from their public position. Uh, you know, he was the guy who decided that there had to be 100,000 of these statues put up around the country. And at the same time, he was the guy whose company then received the contract to produce 100,000 statues. The other interpretation that people have is, at which, you know, these are not mutually exclusive, they can, they can be true at the same time, is that Labib was a symbol of 
the propaganda machine of the regime, and therefore, I guess, an attempt to uh, to bamboozle people basically into thinking that you know because the country is progressive on environment, you know, nothing else is wrong, or you know, we should ignore what's happening in in the other realms of of civil and political rights. Now. One other comment about Labib. <laughs> There's a lot of Labib uh, paraphernalia, as I mentioned. So these are some items that I photographed in the personal archives of, of Shedli Belhamsa, who's the caricaturist who was hired to originally draw and, and create the Labib figure. So you can see, for instance, Labib was central to the World Environment Day in 1994. He, he was printed on in the top right there. That's a, a brown paper bag. Uh, for groceries, so recyclable grocery bags. In the bottom right, a sticker encouraging people to sort their waste. Sort today and you'll find tomorrow. Uh, so sort your waste today for the protection of tomorrow. He was then featured on a stamp, etc., etc. And eventually the, there was the idea that there would be a proliferation of these mascots so in addition to there being a mascot for the environment, there would be one for water, the sun, and so forth. So on the left, these are the initial uh, sketches made by the artist of those different mascots. And then on the right, this was his, the way he imagined a float that would be used in a parade, environmental protection parade of some kind. And in these television adverts, the figure of Labib, he's a kind of ambiguous one in the sense that He's a fairly disciplinarian kind of figure. So one, for instance, one 1996 Ministry of Environment publication described him as simultaneously an image of a sincere friend and a rigorous guide for children and the public. So in the television ads, for instance, he, he lashes out at people who litter by zapping them with lightning bolts. He causes a pile of rubbish that people have left on the beach to, to be piled on top of them so they're buried in their waste. So he, he is someone who was feared and was designed in, in that way. Now, let me say a word about Labib after the revolution. In 2012, on the 13th of March, to be precise, the, the Minister of Environment at that time announced that the government would no longer be using Labib as a mascot, stating that this blue-clad fennec was too closely linked to the, uh, to the ancien uh, regime. And so this association, negative association uh, between Labib and the authoritarian character that I've been describing of, of the previous regime was acknowledged uh, publicly and, and led to the abandonment of the figure. And you can still find people's reactions online to this on Twitter. And they range uh, from, from people saying like, uh, free at last from this torture master and uh, rest in peace Labib. Someone wrote, rest in peace, Labib, I loved aiming at your ass with my slingshot when I was a teenager. To things like, Labib is now a collector's item that's going to be worth a fortune on eBay. Or when I was a child, I didn't throw wrappers on the ground because I was afraid of Labib, rest in peace. And in an interesting turn of events, just this week, actually, the, uh, the new minister of the environment, and, and if you've been following Tunisian politics over the summer, there's, there's been a lot going on. The new Minister of Environment just this week announced that they would be resurrecting Labib 
and that there would be a new campaign based around him, but they're going to be organizing a national uh, competition, inviting children to do drawings and produce stories. So I don't know whether in what form he'll be reborn, whether he'll be recognizably uh, the same or altered, but we'll have to see. So I guess the argument that I'm trying to make here is that this political instrumentalization of the environment and its uses of propaganda, as well as the way in which it became a, a symbol of nepotistic corruption, as well as uh, self-dealing, has a, a significant impact or afterlife in contemporary Tunisia, and in particular in the ways in which environment can be used as, or, or not as, as a political category of action. So that is, that is the end of what I described as being the, the first part of my paper. So in the interest of leaving time uh, for questions, perhaps if I could just take about five minutes to kind of conclude haphazardly on the second part, but I'll just be sort of throwing things at the screen here and we'll see what sticks. And if some of it appeals to you, we can perhaps return to it in questions. So basically what this history has, has led me to, to ask, I guess, is, is um, a question about, so I guess this is a question about what is content and what is context. So in a way, this political history of Labib and the boulevards of the environment is context uh, for understanding how the environment is understood and can and cannot be used today in Tunisia. But at the same time, this history, I guess, is nested within a context of sort of cultural and, and linguistic meanings that are associated uh, with the word and the category. And so what I've been trying to do through some other field work, which consists, for instance, of, of looking at how NGOs and civil society organizations pitch environmental projects to donors, but also the signage that I mentioned earlier, some efforts at understanding the naming and evolution of environmental institutions, including the ministry in Tunisia, and then also the ways in which environment and in particular waste sort of erupt into the political sphere recently, is to try to understand what it is people may mean by this term that's a little bit unfamiliar to me. And I guess the, the argument, as I put it in the uh, abstract, is essentially that the, the term is, I think, dominated by a kind of uh, proximity and visuality. So to put that in very simple and concrete terms, when you say to people, what does the environment consist of? What threatens the environment? You, you really often turn up waste as a response. And I guess on one level, there's nothing surprising about that. But the point I'm trying to make is that it really eclipses a lot of other, and in particular, more large scale conceptions of what the environment would be. So, you know, the climate, planetary scale issues, even water for that matter, tend to be neglected in favor of much more proximate and visual environmental threats. So uh, I'll just give you two little pieces of evidence about that and then I'll, I'll end it there. One of them, I don't know if I can really even call this evidence, but I find it interesting I always thought that the Arabic term for environment was bi'a. That was sort of what I was brought up on when I was in Egypt. And when I got here, I found out that in the signage and even in some of the institutional names, you have this word, which I thought meant the ocean. 
So for instance, the, uh, the National Agency for Protection of the Environment is El Wikela El Wataniya Lihimayat El Mohid, whereas the Ministry of the Environment is Wazirat El Bia. And I've had some interesting conversations with people about this. And generally they just say, you know, they're synonyms. There's nothing too much to it. But if you dig a little bit, El Muhit is, is actually, I think, closer to what we would say in English are the environs. It's environment in the sense of what actually immediately surrounds you. And I think that that way of thinking about the environment is significant in people's conception of environmental threats in Tunisia. And then here, this is where I'll, I'll end it. This was a opinion survey done by the foundation of the German Green Party, Heinrich Boll in Tunisia. They surveyed about 1,000 people. And when they asked people, when the question here was, when I say environment, what are the first words that you think of? So these were spontaneous responses. There was nothing, it was not multiple choice. And you can see that 55, 56% of people said waste, dirtiness, cleanliness. And only 6% of people said pollution. Uh, you can see Labib is number four there with, uh, with 2%. So he still lives on in people's memory. Now, when they gave multiple choice, they turned up a slightly different result there. So these were assisted responses, and they, were, they got about one-third of people talking about uh, cleanliness and waste, and they elicited about one-third of responses with respect to water. So people um, responded differently when they were given a list of problems related to the environment and were sort of poked in the direction of, of discussing water pollution or other issues. So that's very sort of uh, anecdotal, perhaps, or at least sort of, what do you call it? As, uh, it's sort of more uh, suggestive than, uh, than um, conclusive. But I think I'll, I'll stop there, and, and I look forward to the discussion that we can have, and perhaps uh, going a little bit more in depth on some of these points, if possible. Okay, thank you, Jamie. That was wonderful. Let me remind all of the attendees, if you want to ask questions, there's a Q&A button. You can write your questions in, and if you want to remain anonymous, say so, and then I won't say your name when I read out the questions. We have a question from Matteo Lagrenzi, first of all, thanking you for the excellent talk, and he's asking, has a connection ever been explicitly drawn between the environment and personal law or women's rights by the old regime? Um, I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the, the answer to that is. The connection that I was drawing in the paper was an analytic rather than an empiric uh, connection. So uh, from my admittedly limited knowledge of the, um, well, Tunisian history in general, but in particular of the, the tools of legitimation of the Ben Ali regime, I interpret the environment and personal law and women's rights as, as having functioned in, in a similar way. So, so that, that's me who's drawing the connection. Now, to what extent was that done explicitly and, and where would we be able to find that? I can't entirely answer that. Maybe one small element is that they are not co-evil. So I think that the, uh, the family law issue and the status of women in particular in the country came earlier than the environment issue. 
So, I mean, in, when you think about it, the, the 1990s is, is relatively late, I guess you could say for, I mean, the Ministry of the Environment was created in Tunisia in 1992, the National Agency for the Protection of the Environment, I think in 86. So, I mean, just from an institutional history perspective, that's, that's relatively later than the reform of the family code, for instance, and also fairly late, I guess, I don't know if this comparison is fair, but it, I mean, it's, it's later than, than a lot of, uh, you know, European or, or North American countries, I think. And many people connect that to the Rio summit in 1992. That, that was supposed to have been kind of, a, I don't know, a, a watershed moment, I guess. That was said to have been the moment when, the, when Ben Ali and, and the people who were at the summit realized the significance that this theme was going to have going forward and then hurried to kind of get on the bandwagon. Uh, okay, let me um, ask a question. I can't help listening to your talk and thinking about the you know, sort of environmental discourse or, or potentially instrumentalization in Egypt, as I'm sure you must have since you've done field work there as well. Um, as far as I know, Egypt doesn't have anything like Labib. It doesn't have a campaign like that. And of course, the campaign itself seems to be extremely unfortunate because the Ben Ali regime appears to have given environmentalism a bad name in Tunisia. And I was also dismayed when you were talking about how, you know, the, the post-Ben Ali regime, the best they could do was to try to revive Labib rather than to come up with an entirely new strategy for, you know, trying to raise environmental awareness in the country. And as far as I know, in Egypt, environmentalism doesn't have a very high profile, except in one way, which I think does kind of echo what you're talking about, which is that you know, kind of waste and disorder is often used in Egypt as a pretext for moving people away from areas that the state or private interests wanted to appropriate for their own, which is something that you've written about as well. And was environment used in that way in, in Tunisia, uh, you know, as a, as a pretext for the state doing things against people that, you know, it otherwise wouldn't have been able to do? Oh, yeah, that's a very good question. I think that this is, I mean, that is, that is such a striking and, and repeated narrative in Egypt. And it's, it's much less uh, salient, I think, in, in Tunisia by comparison. One of the things that, this isn't really an answer, but maybe I can buy myself some time with this. I mean, one of the things that in Egypt I learned was that uh, uh, it can also be a pejorative term. So people sometimes will, uh, will refer to, to other people as being bia, nas bia, dul nas bia. And I guess the full sentence, I think, is, is bia watia. They're from a low environment. Mm. Um, and I, I guess that the, perhaps that's also a reference to environment in the, in the, in the social sense. So, so they've been, you know, kind of debased or whatever by their, their exposure to, to, you know, other low-class people and that sort of thing. And I've, I've asked many people in Tunisia about that usage or that, that sort of range of, of meanings. And it, uh, it seems to really not, um, really not e exist here. So I think the, the problematization like of, of chaos and, and disorder and kind of the negative environment of, of uh, say, you know, the Eshwayet uh, equivalent here is not something that I've really 
encountered. But it, it is true that that discourse is sometimes uh, deployed. I mean, you know, for example, the salt lakes around Tunis, they tend to, you know, they're poor ground and, you know, they, they're sort of half in the water and so on. And, and there's, uh, you know, a lot of the unplanned building takes place there. And so, you know, one of the arguments that is used uh, to explain, you know, why these are problematic is that they're, they're damaging the, um, you know, the ecosystem there. But it doesn't take on the same sort of inflection, I think. I need to think more about that one, but that's, that's my best crack at it for now. Yeah. Okay. Here's another question. And this is, I'm going to uh, kind of adapt a question that we've got from Frank Demoni, who's asking about, again, the stuff that you don't um, really want to focus on very much in your projects, which is, you know, actual environmental issues, such as the state of aquifers or plans for renewable energy and, and air quality and so forth. But you are focusing on, you know, sort of activity by NGOs, and they must have some problems with, I mean, I mean, you're essentially, you know, kind of subjecting environment to standards of cultural relativism and trying to understand what people mean by environment. But the NGOs presumably are trying to talk about, you know, what they perceive as facts and sort of real environmental issues. So what are they talking about and how did, I mean, to, to the extent that, you, that you're following it, what, I mean, what sort of environmental issues does Tunisia face? Yeah, thanks, Walter and Frank. I think, yeah, I, I, so I guess I, I can sense in Frank's questions, and I, perhaps this is true for some of the other people who are here today, like that, you know, they want to know about the, the actual environmental issues in a, in a positivistic sense, whereas I'm trying to come at this on a kind of, second order level of, of abstraction where what I'm interested in, I, I would, I mean, I struggle with this because I, of course, have an opinion about what is and is not part of the environment. And, and I also care deeply about the protection of the environment. I mean, it's not a coincidence that I've, I've been working on these topics for, for 15 years. But what I'm trying to do here is to treat the environment as um, a category that others used in their discourse at a particular place and moment in time uh, without imputing into it any positivistic content of my own to to the extent that that I can do that. Now, uh, so so much for my approach. Now, about about these sort of uh, international donors, um, I mean, that's a critical angle here, obviously. As I mentioned, even going back to the 1990s, there's huge interest on the part of the international community and, and therefore you know, money flow pertaining to the environment. And that continues to be true today. And I guess, that, I mean, that is contributing to a shift in the way in which people conceive of the environment. So there's like an iterative process through which ideas as they flow from you know, the German Development Corporation or, you know, whatever, USAID. I mean, one of the huge USAID projects here is on demolition waste, for instance. The ideas are moving at the same time as as money flows. And one illustration I could give of sort of the, the misunderstanding, it's not, it's not entirely a, a misunderstanding, but I found it interesting. I work for the French Research Center here, and so they invited me to be part of the uh, what they call the jury, so the committee that was evaluating projects uh, to receive funding from the uh, the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs for environmental projects. 
and they gave 24 grants of about 15,000 euros each to civil society organizations in all the governorates of the country. And one of the things that drove people crazy in this committee was that like two thirds or more of the proposals were to do garbage pickup and uh, to plant trees or tend gardens. And everyone kept saying, oh God, like can't, can't they come up with something more original? Can't they get a more expansive notion of the environment basically? Now, I mean, part of that is just that these are small NGOs. So, you know, they don't necessarily have the means to be able to tackle climate change in a, in a meaningful way or the imagination to come up with an idea for how they could do that. But I think part of it is, is also what I was talking about and is kind of part of this heritage. So I think this is an illustration, I guess, of what I was trying to do. And so there's a process there where, where certain projects get funded and others don't, and that can lead to a shift in the, I guess, you know, the landscape with respect to what's being done on the topic of environment in the country. Okay, we have a couple more questions that have come in. One from Manal Shahabi, who also thanks you for the excellent talk. And her question is that, I'll read it um, verbatim. I find the naming of the different characters in the caricature interesting. The sun and water, et cetera, all had female names except for Labib, who was also depicted as this authoritarian figure who scares people so they won't litter. This could be a coincidence, but feels like Labib was actually created to represent the state, the regulator, in the imagination of the, uh, an authoritarian male. You said you don't know how the Labib will be resurrected, but could we see a Labiba? <laughs> uh, that's such a wonderful comment question that I think um, I think I, I will borrow <laughs> from you, Manal, in trying to improve and continue working on this. I have to confess that I, I didn't actually uh, cotton on to that myself until you pointed it out. But it's, it's, it's very true what you point out. And I guess maybe following on from that, one of my questions would be, you know, is there anything, is there, as I mentioned, none of those other mascots really got much traction. Now, is that, you know, somehow related to, to what you're pointing out? Or is it simply that they were invented kind of late in the game and, you know, there, there's only so many, uh, you know, so many of these things that you can put up, you know? So is it more of a, of a practical sort of uh, constraint? But it will be very curious to see. I mean, the gendering of, of nature and the environment is a fascinating question. People tend often to gender nature and the environment in the feminine. I mean, I'm speaking more broadly here than, than just Tunisia, but I think that's also true in Tunisia. Just last week, I was at a conference about environmental law and so these were all jurists, um, but they tend to give sort of a, a sort of a introduction or a conclusion. There's a moment where there's a kind of uh, rhetorical flourish on their part about, you know, why it's important to protect the environment and how, you know, Tunisia is, you know, martyrized and so on. And they, they tend to um, invoke female metaphors in trying to describe the environment and uh, the, the relationship that we have to the environment and why it's important to protect it. So it is funny that the mascot would be male in a way. I guess he doesn't represent the environment perhaps himself, but rather the protector perhaps, as you say, the state even, yeah. Okay, and we have a question from Virginia McFadden. 
which again starts with an empir empirical question, which you probably won't want to engage with, or, or but you can try. She's asking, picking up from a few of the comments in, in the chat box, have there been unusually high temperatures in Tunisia this past summer, as there have elsewhere, but perhaps more in line with what you're doing in this project, what are Tunisian views or political views, perhaps, on environmental failings elsewhere in the world? And this, I think, probably would be a, a kind of issue for public discourse, which might well articulate with the kinds of things that you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I, I have to acknowledge, like as as Frank and Virginia and, and others have been pointing out, I mean, there were particularly high temperatures in Tunisia this summer, and it's it was a source of, of public discussion and concern, and I mean, it, it took a fairly predictable form, I guess. I mean, it's it's being interpreted and discussed, I guess, in in much the same way extreme weather events are all around the world. I mean, it, it's a kind of experiential confirmation of the uh, you know reality of, of climate change for people yeah i mean i don't want to give the impression that like these issues are not mobilizing people or that they're not concerned about them i mean there's there's tons of mobilizations around pollution uh, from the large factories and industrial sites especially in the south in gabis and in gafsa around water. I mean, the water issue is multifaceted. Many people don't have access to the grid, so it's about public service, but there's also people who do, but whose water is polluted, or about people who used to have wells that would supply water that no longer do. And, you know, there's a conflict there, for instance, with agriculture. I mean, bearing in mind that much like Egypt, actually, Tunisia's agriculture is export-oriented, so it, it's a cash crop-oriented agricultural system that exports to Europe. So, you know, people make the argument that that's a form of water exportation, basically. We're, you know, by sending melons and oranges and so on to Europe, we're, we're selling the uh, Tunisian water to Europe at a cheap price. So those, those arguments certainly do exist. I'll be very curious to talk to people when they get back from the COP conference in, in Glasgow. I know someone who's in the Tunisian delegation. Actually, since you, since you mentioned political mobilization, one other question that occurs to me is, are there groups outside the government that are attempting to use environmental issues, although perhaps not labeled as such, but as you say, water, air pollution, and so forth in places like Gafsa, to form the basis of political opposition against the government? And if so, I mean, who, who would be doing this? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very important question. And it's, it's an area that's sort of uh, where the, the ground is shifting fairly quickly. So there are, there definitely are. I mean, the example that I'm most familiar with because of my continued interest in waste would be political movements around the siting of landfills. And that's a huge issue in, in Tunisia right now. In fact, several landfills since 2011 and, and including very recently, like just in the last few weeks have been closed because of the, uh, the mobilization of the uh, people who live around the site. And this can create some huge problems because typically the agencies that are responsible for finding the new site, you know, are unprepared and are not able to locate one for several years or sometimes even at all. So like on the island of Jerba, for instance, 
or uh, close to the city of Monastir, uh, their dumps have been closed for like almost a decade without there having been a new official site located. And that leads to some, some terrible consequences. Now those, I mean, those are complex cases because typically the people who are protesting believe that it's an example of environmental injustice that the site was placed there in the first place. So they consider themselves to have been, you know, already had to have been marginalized and ignored in the siting process. And then also often the site has overflowed. So it's outlived its, its useful lifespan and, you know, is affecting them with bad smells or, you know, liquid that's leaking out or, you know, everything you could, you could imagine. And then people on the other side react to say, oh, well, you know, this is just NIMBYism, not in my backyard. You know, the waste has to go somewhere and nobody wants it next to them, but somebody's got to take the hit. So these people should just, uh, you know, suck it up and stop being so selfish. Okay. Um, I don't have any more questions in the Q&A box. I'll give the audience one last chance to, to ask questions if they have any. I'm not seeing any. And so if that's the case, then I'm going to, to thank you, Jamie, for a, a lively and fascinating presentation. And I look forward to seeing more of the results of your research. And I wish I could come visit you in Tunis. Maybe I'll try and bring my son there this summer. <laughs> yeah, I don't hesitate to get in touch. <laughs> And actually, the invitation, I would extend it to, to any students in the audience as well. Tunisia is a lovely place for field work, and it's long been neglected in research. That's changing now, but there's a lot of unplowed fields here. Yes, yeah, I love Tunisia. I spent nine months there studying Arabic. So, yeah, it's a great place. And thank you very much for your talk. And thank you to all the audience who attended. And we will see you next week for another episode of our Friday seminar. Goodbye to all.